want to say a special thank you to Chris and the choir and Marilyn and all of the singers and musicians. Uh, they've been practicing for weeks. Uh, a lot of work has gone into that. Uh, and I was very blessed by the music. And just want to publicly say, man, it's awesome to have people serve the Lord through singing. Yeah. Would you pray with me again? Our Father in heaven, God, in your kindness, in your mercy, you sent your son Jesus to be our savior. And Lord, you've given us your word to tell us all about him. I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would overcome any obstacles to our hearing. That he would overcome any hardness of heart. That we would be moved to worship Jesus as we should, as we hear about him in your word. Father, Jesus taught us to pray with confidence that you as a good father love to pour out your blessing. And so it's with confidence that we say in his name, amen. For scripture reading this morning, I, I want to read from Matthew 28, Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to, to open it, turn there, or use your phone or however you, you read scripture. Beginning in Matthew chapter 28, and my scripture passage is in Matthew 26, so you can just stay right there. I'm going to encourage you to follow along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 28. Scripture says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This morning, I want to meditate on that word, worship. And perhaps you saw a video we put out on, on Facebook and on YouTube asking the question, why worship Jesus? Worship is a word that is not something we use, at least in a biblical sense. Uh, you might say that a guy worships the ground his, his girlfriend walks on. Uh, although the longer you're in a relationship, the tougher that becomes. You might think through maybe a show like NCIS, where sometimes religious fanatics do great violence and acts of terrorism, claiming that they are following their allegiance to some sort of God. But for most of us, I think worship is at best a fuzzy idea. Maybe you think of the things that you do in church, you know, just attending church, or maybe giving financially. Maybe you think of it in terms of singing. Maybe you've heard people talk about how all of life is to be an act of worship. In fact, for a long time, it was really popular to say, you know, don't think of singing as worship. Think of your whole life as worship, and singing is just part of that. And, and there's some truth in that. But the question becomes, how do you and I worship Jesus the way the Bible describes, and should we? Should we? Um, now, some of you are here today, and you're believers in Jesus, and you follow Jesus, and so the question is really, how do I worship Jesus better? Uh, but for those of you who maybe are not sure who Jesus is, it's an open question. Is it right to worship this man? 
Is he worthy of our worship? And so let's pause for a second and think about what worship is. You know, you can turn to the dictionary and just look for a standard usage of what it means. And it means to ascribe value, to recognize that there is worth in your object of worship. I like to think of it as praising and enjoying anything of value. Now, I'm not talking in a religious sense yet. Praising and enjoying anything of value. And you can do that in a million different ways. Uh, Right now, my seven-year-old is kind of obsessed with video games because he's a seven-year-old. And he will talk for the longest time. A couple couple of weeks ago, he went over to the auntie's house. And and when he came back to my house, I got a play-by-play analysis of every game that they played, every character that they encountered. Because he sees great value in the joy of playing those games. I don't have to persuade him that he should. I, I, I Never. I've never said to him, son, you need to play more video games. It's just not, it doesn't make sense. But because of his heart, he values the experience. He loves the experience. And he doesn't just enjoy playing it. He wants other people to share his joy. He wants to tell you all about it. He wants to ask you if you've experienced the same joy. He wants to share it with you. You can experience this in your favorite hobbies, in your your favorite people, in your favorite places. Worship, in some sense, is a joyful obsession with a good thing. That's on a human level. But let's talk about a religious level. If you look through the New Testament, And I want to give you several snapshots, just short little postage stamp versions of encounters with Jesus and what people did when they saw him and heard him. And think about if it's ever appropriate to do this for a person. When Jesus is born, angels announce his birth. Luke's gospel tells us how there were shepherds in a field and With no warning, the sky was lit up and there was a joyful announcement that a Savior had been born. No one else in history has this kind of fanfare. Wise men come and worship him. They get down on their knees in the presence of something greater. They give him gifts. The Gospels describe how Jesus overcame Satan. How God the Father announced and displayed the glory of Jesus. Think about that for a second. God the Father wanted people to know who Jesus, his son, was. At the baptism of Jesus, God announces, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Everybody else, listen to him. He didn't do that for any of the prophets. He didn't do that for anybody else. But he announced, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he opened the word of God and he explained it. And people loved listening to him. No one made the crowds flock to him. They came because they wanted to hear this man who spoke to them about who God was and who they were. And he was a man who loved everyone he met. In fact, it said throughout the scriptures, sinners and tax collectors, who loves the IRS? Nobody. But Jesus did. It said prostitutes and tax collectors came to him in droves because he was honest with them about who they were and about the love of God for them that would forgive them, that would restore them. Jesus, in his preaching and his teaching, he answered every critic and he saw through every deception. Now, we've just come through a crazy political season. I'm not going to be political this morning. All I want to do is, who was your candidate? I'm not going to ask you a show of hands or any sort of poll, but think who your candidate was, the person you wanted to win. 
And I guarantee you, you had clips of news conferences, of interviews, of campaign rallies, where there were these little statements where they said, we're like, yeah, yeah, look, look at what he said there. And maybe he made someone else look silly. Maybe he was championing a cause that you loved and cared for. But those moments of sort of cleverness and strength where our politicians say what we want to hear. Well, Jesus was kind of like that, but even better. There are so many stories in the Gospels of people who are not honest, who come up asking misleading questions, trying to trap him, and they couldn't do it. In fact, he was so good at giving appropriate answers, they quit trying. Because he made them look foolish in front of everyone else. And the crowds that listened to him only grew as the religious leaders who began to believe that he was a fraud tried to trap him in many different ways. And Jesus, in his wisdom, saw through every deception. And he always answered the question you should have asked instead of the question you did ask. He saw to the heart of the issue. He was the kind of person you would trust with your biggest questions. And he was full of mercy and kindness. In many ways, in 2021, our standards for leadership are a bit low. Okay? We, we, we have ideas of what we would maybe like in our leaders. But with so many people who have done terrible things, being caught in their very public sins, on one level, we just want leaders with integrity, right? We want somebody that doesn't have a skeleton in their closet. That matters to us. And and think about this. In all of his public ministry to thousands and thousands of people, there was never a scandal involving Jesus. Jesus never abused anyone in any way. The Apostle John said he was full of grace and truth. Grace, meaning favor that we don't deserve. It means he liked you before he knew you. And when he knew you, he liked you anyway. He couldn't be bought. Women who had been victimized and abused found him to be trustworthy. And when people encountered him, they had so many reactions that Peter, okay, think think of the apostle Peter for a moment. And if you're new to the scriptures, Peter is one of Jesus' first followers. When you read through the Bible, you see him in the book of Acts preaching the good news of Jesus. He writes a couple of the books of the New Testament. He's what you would call kind of a professional Christian by the end of his life. But when Peter meets Jesus for the first time, Jesus has been preaching to a large crowd, and it was so large that he asked Peter, he said, Peter's a fisherman, and so he gets in Peter's boat, and they row out just a little ways from the shore so that everyone can hear well. So the water acts as kind of a natural amphitheater. And after Jesus is done teaching, we don't know how long he taught, but when he's done teaching, he kind of dismisses the crowd. And, and Peter, that day anyway, was a failure of a fisherman. Said he'd been out all night, hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, well, row out a little bit deeper, and I want you to throw the nets down on the other side of the boat. Like, that's going to work, right? But it does. And there are so many fish that the boat begins to sink and the nets begin to break. And do you know what Peter's reaction is? He's not like, sweet, we're rich. He's not enthusiastic about the power of this man. He falls on his face and he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Now think about that reaction for a moment in the context of worship, okay? If worship is recognizing the great value of something, and I want to add that it's not just recognizing the value, but it's enjoying it and wanting to be part of it. Peter's first reaction is not, I want to be part of this. Peter's first reaction is, I can't be part of this. He believes that his own sin will keep him from being friends with Jesus. And that although Jesus has just blessed him enormously, it's probably the highest rent he's ever collected for someone using his boat. Peter recognizes there's something about this man 
There's a purity here that I don't have. There's a greatness here that I can't be part of. And Jesus, in his grace, he doesn't say, yeah, you're right, Peter, get out of my boat. He doesn't. He says, follow me. He doesn't say, Peter, you're wrong, you're not that bad. In spite of Peter's own confessed sin, he says, follow me, come with me. Not only Peter, in John 9, there's an incredible story. You should read the whole, the whole chapter, but, but not in this sermon. He sees this man who's blind from birth. And I'm not going to recount the whole story, but, but Jesus heals this man. And it creates controversy because the leaders of the day are wanting to reject Jesus. They're beginning to say that he's a fraud. And the man doesn't totally know who Jesus is when he's healed. And he runs into him a few days later. And this man says, Lord, I believe. And he fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He worshipped him. He's acknowledging the greatness and the power of this man who's in front of him. Zacchaeus is another he's an amazing example of a guy that loves money. He's one of the tax collectors. He's one of the IRS of the ancient world. And when he meets Jesus, he wants to get rid of the gold that was his God and give it away to the poor. He recognizes the precious value of having a relationship with Jesus that he had been missing up to that point. And the God that he worshipped in wealth no longer had a hold on his heart. Instead, he wanted to right old wrongs. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house, not because of anything that Zacchaeus was doing, but because of what happened in his heart when he encountered Jesus, he recognized the precious value of Jesus and the fact that Jesus would welcome him when so many others wouldn't. You can think of women like Mary who wanted to sit at Jesus' feet, the, the sister of Lazarus. She just wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. You can think of pictures in the Gospels like the transfiguration. It's the moment when Jesus, who is clearly human in every way, all of a sudden the veil is pulled back and there's a light shining from his face and they understand he's not just a man. He's not just a teacher. There's something more here. And his divine glory is revealed. The end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, 52 Jesus has risen from the dead, and finally the disciples put all the pieces together, and it says they worshipped him. But I want to show you one other verse in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. He's being tempted to sin in different ways, and Jesus says to Satan, you are to worship the Lord your God and him only. Now, I said in the beginning that I wanted to talk about worship in a sense that you worship things that you love, and that's true. But there's a higher sense, there's a deeper sense where it becomes sinful to give this kind of worship to anyone or anything other than God. So if you look through the Bible, there are cases where angels appear in glory and people in their terror fall down and, and begin to worship the angel. And any angel immediately stopped that. Said, I'm a created being like you. You worship God, not me. Happens in the Old Testament, happens in the book of Revelation. A couple of times in the book of Acts, people fall down and begin to worship the apostle Peter because he's just worked this incredible miracle. And Peter says, stop it. I'm a sinful man just like you. You worship God and God alone. But what happens after the resurrection and in John chapter 9 and throughout the life of Jesus when people fall on their knees in front of him and worship him, he welcomes it and he accepts it. He doesn't say, I'm not worthy, worship God. He says, this is the right thing for you to do. And I want to ask you this morning, as you think about Jesus Christ, you may have a high opinion of him as a teacher, but do you worship him? Do you give him all that is due to his name and what he's done? Jesus 
not only showed his glory in the transfiguration where there's light shining from his face, he not only does these great miracles that drew crowds, he not only taught with accuracy, he gave promises like this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, as I was thinking about this message and, and different reasons that we might be drawn to Jesus or different reasons we may push Jesus away, one of the things that I think is incredible about Christ, we live in, a, in an age of therapy and counseling, right? Uh, where many people are able to recognize their brokenness and in seeking healing, they try to find the right therapist or the right counselor. You know, in the life of Jesus, when people came to him, they found a great healer. Now, I, I believe that Jesus offers the same sort of healing today. For some people, it happens in a moment. And, and there's a life change when you encounter Christ and, and things begin to get better. For other people, they may live in a sort of depression until one day Jesus is going to raise them from the dead. But the reason I mention therapy and counseling is, is I believe that if you recognize your brokenness and your depression, a part of you recognizes your need for Jesus Christ and that there is hope and healing in this Savior today and that his invitation, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Okay, that's, that's old school King James-ish kind of talk. But what if he said it this way? Come to me, all you who are full of anxiety and fear and depression, and I will give you rest. I believe that's absolutely true. That there is a hope in Jesus Christ and his ability to forgive and to heal is why he is worthy of worship. And I want to show you in detail one passage in particular in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. So a moment ago we read the resurrection how he comes to life, how he's worshipped by the women who discovered the empty tomb. I'm going to go back just a couple of days before he's crucified, before he was raised from the dead, find a woman who worshipped him before he died. But it begins with his talking about the cross. So as we answer this question, why worship Jesus? Notice Jesus' mission is not just to teach. It's not just to heal. His mission is to die. So look with me at Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, now if you look at Matthew's gospel, he's been teaching for about three chapters. And you get a really large body of what he believes will happen, what he's declaring will happen at the end of the world, how we should live as we wait for his return. And when he'd finished all of this teaching... He said to his disciples, verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And one of the curious things about Jesus is as people found him to be full of grace and truth and they found that he could heal their diseases and that he forgave their sins, as the crowds grew, so did the opposition to his life and ministry. And many people hated him and wanted him dead. And that was their reaction to seeing Jesus feed the hungry, heal the sick, raise the dead, and teach and preach the word of God. As he declared what was true, for many people, they heard what was true and they didn't like it. See, the people who knew that they were broken had no problem understanding that they needed to repent and find forgiveness in Christ. But the people who thought they were fine were insulted by his teaching. How dare you teach me that I need to repent of my sins? They would say things like, we're children of Abraham, we're already right with God. And Jesus was saying, no. You need this just like the tax collectors, just like the prostitutes, just like the drunks. All the people who are messed up, who are finding forgiveness and healing, 
And Jesus is saying that's not just for people whose sins are obvious and on the outside, but the need for salvation is for every person. And the stunning thing is, Jesus knew that they intended to kill him. He wasn't caught up in some sort of plot that he was unaware of. He understood that they were rejecting him. In fact, Scripture taught that that had to happen. And Jesus willingly went to be arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, and crucified. Why did he do that? Because that was what was necessary for sinners to be finally forgiven. Jesus didn't just ignore sin. He didn't say it was fine. He took the consequence on himself and was willing to go and be crucified by people who didn't understand what they were doing. Jesus understood, he said, his mission was to seek and save the lost. And so this is what he must do, and he does it willingly. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bibles in Luke's gospel, maybe you've heard of the prodigal son, this guy that messes up his life, wants to take his dad's wealth and go and live in a kind of wild, crazy way. And he spends it all and he finds himself bankrupt and he finds himself starving and he doesn't even have clothes that, that he can use to meet his basic needs. And the heart of his father is such that he welcomes him back with open arms. And Jesus says, that's what God is like. But the reason the father can welcome back a wayward sinner is because Jesus bore the price of those sins on the cross. Friends, if we ask the question, why worship Jesus? It's because he has a heart to take your place and my place. Who else would do that for you? Only the Son of God. Who else could do that for you? Only the Son of God. So he doesn't deserve just like a pat on the back and, man, that was a great sermon. He deserves something infinitely more. He doesn't deserve your respect and recognition as if you say, yeah, I think he's an all right guy. He deserves your absolute worship where you fall on your knees in the presence of someone infinitely greater and recognize what he's done for you and his love for you. Why worship Jesus? Because he went to the cross for you. But the truth is today, still people do not always respond this way. And we see two different responses to this Savior in our text this morning. And I want to go now to, to the woman who worships Jesus with her actions. Look with me at verses 6 through 13. It says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, maybe you've heard that story before, and it's just become part of a bunch of Bible stories that we take for granted. Like, yeah, this thing happened. But pause and think about what that would be like in 2021. Okay? Think in the era of scandals, where both on the left and the right, there are powerful men who have been exposed as abusers. In fact, there are even religious men recently, still tragically, I think often of Ravi Zacharias, who had a great show of publicly being a Christian, but privately abused hundreds of women. Think of the scandal of this type of thing happening to anyone in public. Would it be okay for a woman to show her affection for a man publicly like that today? Absolutely not. 
And in fact, what I want to say to you is that it's totally inappropriate for any human to accept this as an act of worship. But it's not inappropriate for Jesus. What she does could not be done to any other person in a way that's pure and holy. But what she does for Christ is fitting and beautiful. If somebody tried to do this, I'm going to tell you right now, I get kind of weirded out if somebody wants to hug me and I don't know them. Somebody comes up and is like, Pastor, I just want to, I just want to pour this oil on your head. I don't be like, ah, I'm, no, I'm good, thanks, I'm fine. But Christ recognizes it as an act of sincere worship. This is probably worth about a year's wages. So like median income in Holly is about $50,000. So you imagine somebody coming in with a $50,000 gift and just saying, this is yours. Now she's not wealthy. She's not going to get another $50,000 the next year. This is everything she has. And she is pouring it out on Jesus to recognize who he is as the Messiah. There's a level where this is kind of like an anointing as a king, where she's saying, I believe you are blessed by God. I believe that you speak the words of God. I believe that you serve in the power of God, that you have the spirit of God on you. If you look through the Old Testament and how oil is used, it's a physical display of a spiritual reality. Anointing is a physical way to show the presence of God on someone's life. So they would anoint the king to say, this is God's man. They would anoint the priest to prepare him for service. And in anointing Jesus Christ, he is our priestly king who leads us with authority, with absolute purity, And he says what she's done is beautiful. In fact, she's preparing my body for burial. While the religious leaders wanted to kill him, this woman understood who he was and expressed her love in a costly, sacrificial way. And it made people mad. You know, friends, there there are a lot of people that appreciate some of the good works that the church does. And and I'm proud of the fact that we have an amazing food pantry and an amazing food program that feeds thousands of people in our local area. And that's not an exaggeration. It's a great blessing to be able to do that for our ministry. But But you know the truth, a lot of people are fine with the good works that the church does, but they feel like the religious side of things is kind of a waste. Like, why do you have to read the Bible? Why do you have to sing songs? What is all this stuff around Jesus? Why not just do good? And they would kind of cut away the Jesus side of the church and just say, just do good, just love people. But friends, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is not love your neighbor as yourself. He said, that's the second greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And if you need a picture of what that looks like, look at what this woman does for Christ. She gives to him sacrificially. She honors him in a way that nobody else was doing. And her radical devotion made other people who didn't know who Jesus was think that she was crazy. And friends, if we worship Jesus as we should, I believe there are going to be some people that think we're crazy. And that's right. And that's good. Because Jesus is worthy of a kind of devotion that does not make sense unless you understand he is the God who loves you and gave himself for you. And so your response should be deeper and sacrificial than anyone would ever say makes sense unless he really is who he said he was. The disciples here, they're kind of all over the place. They have moments of great success. Sometimes they get a bad rap, and we love to make fun of them because it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves, right? But throughout the, the, the Gospels, they preach. They perform miracles. They have some idea that God is doing something through Jesus. They just don't totally grasp it yet. They've seen him heal. They've heard him preach. They understand that he forgives sins. 
But in this moment, they feel like this woman is out of line, that she's somehow gone too far. And friends, I think many people are still there today. And so I want to give three kind of options. And the woman gives us an example of sold-out worship, pouring out who you are and what you have in the worship and service of Christ. The disciples are not persuaded that Christ is worth that. And they criticize her and question whether or not it was right. And they say, you know, we should have just given this sum to the poor. $50,000. Man, we could do a lot of good with $50,000. But not only do some people sit on the fence and question whether or not true worshipers are crazy or, or right or good, some people go to the opposite extreme and they want to tear down Jesus himself. And so if we've seen the cross, which is Jesus' mission, one of the biggest reasons I believe we ought to worship him because he gave himself for us. If we see the example of this woman in true and sincere and pure and holy worship, I want to show you a third person. And as I pick the text, this is why. I think it's harder to recognize how much we need to make a choice without seeing two opposite extremes. And what I want to say to you today is, I believe most of us, on some level, are where the disciples are at. We're not worshiping as we ought, and we're not actively opposing Jesus. We're maybe a little bit on the fence, even for those who recognize that Jesus is the Savior. And if you don't recognize he's the Savior, then here's the danger. The third point that I want to look at this morning is the betrayer. And look at what Judas does immediately following this. It's verse 14 through 16 says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, now he's a man who's preached, he's probably even performed miracles in the name of Jesus. He has followed Jesus for three years. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, this is the exact opposite of worship. This is not giving recognition to Jesus for who he is and what he does. This is trying to get out of Jesus what you can. And in fact, he not only betrays Jesus, he does it cheaply. What they pay him is about 100 times less than what this woman just gave Jesus. He is willing, he doesn't even say, look, my Lord is a valuable man and you owe me. He says, what can I get? And he's happy with whatever they say. And I believe it starts, you know, when Jesus first called Judas to be a follower, Judas was not a hardened man who was like, yeah, I'm going to betray this guy. He followed him sincerely for three years. He preached the same message that Jesus preached. He worked miracles in the name of Jesus. And yet, he was the loudest voice when this woman comes and worships him. And I believe that your reaction to who Jesus is and how people treat Jesus says a lot about where your heart will end up. If you meet some young kid and they're excited and they want to go to the mission field and give their lives to tell people who've never heard about Jesus the good news that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, and you look at that and you say, man, that's a waste. That's probably a bad indicator of where your heart is in relation to Christ. I've, I've never experienced this, but I've heard from other pastors They've had kids grow up in the congregation and do exactly what I just described. They follow the call of God on their lives and say, man, I, I want to serve Jesus on the mission field. And I know, I've got friends who went to Moody Bible Institute with me, and they are all over the world right now telling people the good news of Jesus. Some of them are Bible translators. Some of them are, are planting churches. Some of them are, are uh, in the Middle East, countries like Libya. Right now, I've got a buddy who's a pastor at a church in Libya. He just started just about two weeks ago. And I've had pastors say that the parents of these children are furious. So you're keeping my kids and my grandkids from me. They're all the way on the other side of the world. 
And they begin to be angry that someone would devote their life to the service of Jesus because it seems like a waste. And friends, if our heart is anger and frustration at what we lose now as someone else goes and serves Christ, we're in a dangerous place in how we relate to Jesus. We might be where the disciples are and kind of on the fence, but if that's our reaction, we're moving closer to where Judas is where eventually he no longer values Jesus at all, and then he makes the step of wanting to get what he can out of Jesus. Friends, I believe that these contrasts are an invitation to us to examine our hearts. What does your heart do when someone says the name of Jesus? Does it move to a place where you think, I owe him everything? Does it move to a place where you think, and I know some Christians that are hypocrites and crazy. Does it move to a place where you think, ah, he's probably a fraud? You know, there were many people that had those reactions when this good news was first preached. And I thought this morning, you know, maybe I'd give some evidence for the resurrection. There's lots of good evidence. There's lots of good historical reasons to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But what I want to do more than that it's just simply preach to you this morning what the Bible says and give you a biblical invitation. So I've talked a little bit about the cross of Christ, how Jesus willingly went to Jerusalem knowing he would die for our sins. I've talked to you a little bit about this woman who sacrificially pours out this precious ointment to show Jesus her faith and her love and her affection. We've talked for a moment about Judas who is horrified by true worship and instead tries to sell Jesus. Let's talk for a minute about you and me. And to do this, I want to show you a passage in the book of Acts. Uh, the screen says Acts 17.30. I'm actually going to be in Acts chapter 3. Acts 17 is a fantastic passage, uh, but I just felt like it didn't fit as well as, as, as what I felt like we needed this morning. So I'm going to be in Acts chapter 3. And Peter who was one of the disciples at this dinner, who scratches his head and said, you know, we, we could have sold that and given money to the poor. Peter has had a change of heart. He's seen the risen Lord. He has now fallen on his knees and worshiped Jesus. And in Acts chapter 3, I'm just going to read verse 18 and through part of verse 20. Peter is preaching this message and describing how Jesus has died for our sins and been raised in power how he has promised to forgive your sins and my sins and to give you eternal life and how all of this makes sense with what God has been doing throughout all of scripture. And as he finishes his message, he says this, he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now notice what Peter's instructions are there. He is boldly saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's getting thrown in jail and threatened and all kinds of terrible things are happening in his life because he's willing to preach this message that Jesus rose from the dead. And as he announces to the people who days earlier had called for the crucifixion of Jesus, he's saying, you need to repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. In other words, before you thought Jesus was a fraud, now you need to recognize that he is the Messiah that God has told us about for thousands of years to this point. You may have thought Jesus was a fake, now you need to recognize he truly is the Savior. And you may have thought that you were fine. Now you need to recognize that your response to him was sinful and wrong. In fact, anything short of worshiping Jesus, I believe the Bible teaches, is the greatest sin in the world. Because he's worthy of our utmost worship. There's no one who's more loving. There's no one who's done more for you than Christ. And if your reaction is cold indifference, or even just, I, you know, I'll decide later, I'll figure that out later, you're not giving him his due. 
And if Jesus rose from the dead, your response must be, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And as your sins are blotted out, Peter says, times of refreshing may come at the presence of the Lord. That's not about outward actions. It's about the heart. Jesus is a clear teacher of what worship is. You can go through the motions of doing the things on the outside, but if on the inside your heart is not excited about Christ, there's no value in the outward forms of worship. In fact, you could go through and do exactly what the woman who anoints him does and have it be utterly meaningless if your heart's not there. So maybe you just don't understand how to get your heart to genuinely worship the Lord? And what do you do if you recognize that you should worship Jesus, but you don't have any desire to? Well, friends, I believe we need to start by meditating deeply on what the Lord Jesus has done for us in the cross. Meditating deeply on what it means that he rose from the dead. Think about the agony of his suffering and about the complete and utter triumph of the resurrection. Think about the promises that he has offered throughout the gospel. At the beginning of this message, I mentioned one of them. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, at a bare minimum, even just in terms of human respect, listening is the first step of respect, right? Have you ever heard of a healthy, functional relationship where one person just goes, uh-huh, uh-huh? And then you say, what, did you hear what I said? Huh? No. But how many of us treat the Lord like that? If we're going to worship the Lord, we need to listen to what he said, to know what he's done. And so if your heart is, is not in genuine worship and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know why we should come to church, why we should give, why we should listen, why we should sing, I don't get any of that. Begin by listening to what Christ has said and take his offer seriously. And don't just listen to what he's said, look at what he's done. Think deeply about the cross and the empty tomb and think about his invitation, come, come. Jesus invites you to himself. He doesn't point you somewhere else. He is the risen Savior. And so if you wrestle with not feeling the way you should in true and genuine worship, I would begin by remembering Christ. Remember what he's done and then just acknowledge and confess as sin your own heart that isn't worshiping as it should. I'd do it like this. Say, Father in heaven, I've heard who Jesus is, and I feel like I need something, but I'm just not sure. And I would just openly pray, Lord, would you forgive me for not loving you like I should? Would you heal me of this broken, hard heart that, that I know I should worship, and yet I struggle to? And talk to God about your struggles in worship. Be open about the fact that you don't want to be a hypocrite. Okay, hypocrites are good church people. They put on the right clothes, they give, they sing loud, but there's nothing inside. And I don't care at all if you do the right things on the outside. I care very deeply if you know who Jesus Christ is on the inside. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would be working in your heart right now, that you would recognize you need to worship Jesus. And even if you don't feel like it, you can ask the Lord to do a work in your heart to change you from the inside out. So like this woman, you pour out your treasures in love and devotion to Christ. That's going to look a little bit different for everybody. God's made us all different, praise God. Some of you are going to be musical and you're going to worship the Lord through music. Some of you are, are going to worship the Lord by being evangelists and telling everyone you know, like Peter does, about what Jesus has done for us. But all of us are called to gather together to sing the praises of our risen Savior, to humble ourselves under his teaching. And so I want to invite you to examine your heart this morning. Are you worshiping the Lord as you should, the way he deserves? Christian, it's easy to be distracted by things in life that don't matter. 
It's easy to become ensnared in different sin that pulls us away from the Lord. Let this be a time of repentance. Let this be a time where you examine your heart and see, should I be giving more? Am I giving as I should? And I don't mean just financially. I mean in terms of your devotion, of your singing, of your thoughts. Are you seeking the Lord with a full heart? And maybe you're hearing this this morning, whether you're in person or whether you're online, and you just don't know if you're even a Christian. Friends, I believe the first step of true worship is baptism. Baptism is falling on your knees at the feet of Jesus and saying, I deserve to die the way you died, and yet you have given me life. And so if you recognize your need for Jesus and you're not a Christian, would you commit today to being baptized? You can tell me about that if you're here in person. You can send me a text message. You can email the church through our website. Would you commit to following the Lord and believer's baptism and saying, I am Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. Would you pray with me now? Friends, before I lead us in prayer, I want to mention, I believe the fullness of joy is in heartfelt worship. You can't force this. You can't yell at people and make them worship any more than, than you can turn a statue into a living, breathing person. It takes a miracle of God. And I believe that your greatest joy is bound up in knowing who Jesus is. And that's why I talk about sin and repentance. Because as you know Jesus and you experience forgiveness, it will lead to the greatest joy you can ever know. So Father, I ask, Lord, I've preached the word about Jesus being the Savior, about how he has died for our sins and been raised to new life. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would move Christians to worship as they ought, and that you would save those who haven't met Jesus yet. I pray that we would experience the rest that Jesus promised as we come to him. And I pray that we would come. In Jesus' name, amen.